right at the top of the Bible, right at the beginning, Genesis, Genesis 1, the first thing that the Lord says is, let there be light. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, and that was the first day. The first thing that God did was create light. And this is really, this is really interesting because God doesn't need light. He doesn't need light to be able to see things. He can see everything, right? He created light for people to be able to see. For he knew that he was going to be creating people, and he had, and he created light in order for people to see. And this, uh, this is like the, it kind of speaks of um, of revelation. It speaks of unveiling. It speaks of um, of a new dawn where the sun comes up and you're able to see what's going on around you. That's the first thing that God did. Let there be light. Okay, and we jump forward now. So that's right at the beginning of the Old Testament, right? The first thing that God says, let there be light. We jump forward to John chapter 1, the Gospel of John chapter 1. And it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not, has not overcome it. So again, we have right at the very, very top, very first thing that happened, light was created. And then we get to the New Testament, and it talks about in him, we're talking about Jesus, in him was life, and life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. What I'm going to get to, I hope that I'm going to be able to unpack it this morning, is this, is this amazing thing of, of revelation and of unveiling, and this word, this Greek word that has a lot of uh, baggage associated with it today, and that's apocalypse. Apocalypse basically means unveiling. The very first thing that happened in the Bible was God said, let there be light, and there was light, and it was an unveiling, right? So people could see what was going on. The veil was before there was darkness. If people were created, they wouldn't be able to see anything. Then there's light they're able to see. And then right at the beginning of the New Testament, another unveiling. Jesus is born as a baby. The light of of men comes into the world, and there's a new unveiling, a way to see things differently. It's an apocalypse. You got apocalypse number one at the beginning of the Bible. Then we have another apocalypse, another unveiling in the New Testament. And our hope, even though people don't talk about apocalypse like that, like that anymore, but our hope is actually in the ultimate unveiling. You know, where we'll be able to see God in all of His glory, where all the darkness will be pushed away, where. Um, there will be no more barriers between us and the, and the heavenly realm where, where God resides. And this is the ultimate unveiling that we're hoping for. So I did have a working title for, this, for my message this morning, and it was Hope in the Apocalypse. Hope in the Apocalypse. But let's see. I'll try to do some unpacking, and we'll see how, how we go. <laughs> I remember a few years ago, uh, I was at a, 
Um, it was kind of like a reunion for old boys from, from my secondary school, from Wellington College, and uh, it must have been a 20-year, kind of like a 20-year reunion. And I was talking to an old schoolmate. I don't think we're, I, I use mates in kind of a loose sense of the word. We went, we went to school together. Um, and I was talking to him, and uh, we are talking about what we did, you know, and... Um, and he was a vet, and and uh, talked about how I was a science scientist, and and uh, also at that time I was a scientist, and I was also associate pastor here at church. And so, so he discovers that I'm a Christian, and uh, and he was really sort of like quite shocked, maybe maybe surprised, maybe bemused. And I remember him saying in a um, sort of that that. I think mocking tone that uh, reminded me so much of being at secondary school, and it was like, oh. So you believe in the virgin birth, do you? And I was like, I was like, yeah. <laughs> but but you know the way he said it, he didn't really care whether I did or not. It was just an opportunity to make fun of me. And but it always like I just remember this conversation because it's like, you know, um, the the miracle of Christmas was for me not so much the virgin birth as miraculous as that was. Uh, you know that um, that Mary who. Uh, had never, to use biblical language, laid, laid with a man, you know, that she would conceive and have a baby. I mean, that's a miracle. But the greater miracle is that God, who created all things, who created the universe, who created the sun, the stars, uh, Mount Everest, the deepest ocean trenches, everything that you see from the smallest organism to the biggest, um, biggest organism that you can think of, a blue whale or something like that, that God would become, become flesh. That God would take on the, the clothes of humanity. You know, that for me was the, was the greater, what was great, greatest miracle. And we call that, we call that in, uh, sort of in Christian language, we call it the incarnation. And it's, it's, such, uh, it's, such an important, it's such an important word, incarnation. Bas- and it basically it is just this sense of God becoming man, God becoming flesh. I mean, absolutely, the, the, the virgin birth uh, was, was incredible. So if we turn to Luke uh, chapter 1, 26, chapter 1, 26. And it says, in the sixth month, the angel, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, and Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. <clears throat> and he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. You know, was he going to kill her? Was he, was he a good guy or a bad guy? And he says, don't be afraid. The angel said to her, don't be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall, and you shall call his name Jesus. And he will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? Yeah, she's like my uh, old schoolmate who goes, oh, so you believe in the virgin birth. Like, how can this be? I'm a virgin. We know where babies come from. Even 2,000 years ago. How will this be since I'm a virgin? And the angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. 
Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Right? The angel's saying, this is going to be a miracle. It's not going to happen through natural ways. This baby that is going to be born to you, it's only going to happen when the Holy Spirit overshadows you. And you kind of conceive from, from the power of the Holy Spirit. Thinking back to the beginning of Genesis, the Holy Spirit hovered over the waters, and the Lord then spoke light into being. When the Holy Spirit hovers over, over things, interesting things happen. <laughs> interesting things happen, eh? You've got to be careful when you invite the Holy Spirit to hover over you. Um, so she, so she, she found it perplexing and, 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 and surprising, but he's going, don't worry, the Holy Spirit is going to do it. But let's go back to those words where, where, the, where the angel talks about Jesus. You shall call his name Jesus. He'll be great. He'll be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. When Tessa spoke last week, and it was a, just a fantastic message, Tessa, um, and she talked about how Jesus is the light of the world that came, and she referred back to this prophecy in Isaiah. So this is hundreds of years before Jesus uh, was born. And the prophecy is in Isaiah 9. And it says, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them a light shone. And we'll jump forward to verse 6. It says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness. From this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. That When the angel speaks those words to Mary, to the Virgin Mary, the angel is speaking really similar words to this prophecy in Isaiah. So if Mary knew, these prof- knew this prophecy, she would go and Maybe it was like this, this double surprise thing. How am I going to become pregnant when I am a virgin? And are you really saying that this child that I'm going to be having is this child that was prophesied back, uh, back in the word of Isaiah? And at the beginning of that prophecy, it talks about the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. And again, like this idea where there is no light, we cannot see. Um, in, the, in, the, in the natural, it's, it's so obvious, right? You get up in the middle of the night, and unless there's some sort of light around, you turn on a nightlight or something, you, you're probably going to stub your toe or bang, in, bang into a door when you're trying to find your way to the toilet. I know this from experience. I've walked into doors in the middle of the night, like trying to find my way around. But when the, when the light of God shines, then, we, then you can see. There's this, and this is, uh, this is this word, again, apocalypse, the unveiling, being able, to see things, being able to see things clearly, this unveiling. I'm going to keep coming back to it. There's a, a, a game that I quite like to play, and you might, have, you might have played it as well, a drawing game called Exquisite Corpse. Has anybody played Exquisite Corpse? Does that ring a bell with anybody? No? 
Exquisite Corpse, I'm sure that you've played it. So you grab a piece of paper. If I was a bit more onto it, I would have had a, had a piece of paper. And you, and you fold it. You fold it like that. And you fold it again. And you fold it again. You fold it again. Or you fold it a few times, right? And then the, the first person, while nobody else is looking, the first person draws on, on the exposed piece of paper. And then they leave some little guides at the bottom of the fold. And then the, then the next person draws while no one else is looking, on the next part, piece of paper. Is this ringing a bell? And then you fold it over again, and the next person draws, and they do it again, the next person draws. I mean, we do it at home with, um, with Elena, and it's quite funny. She doesn't really understand, and so she'll just draw a random picture on the first bit, and then Tessa, Tessa and I will kind of draw our bits, and they sort of join up. But Anyway, it's called Exquisite Corpse. I don't know, I've got no idea where that name came from. It sounds kind of morbid and now that I think about it. Exquisite Corpse. But, but the idea is like you get that first bit of drawing and you, and you don't know what it is. And then it's sort of like as you, as you unfold the piece of paper, it all becomes clear. Or it doesn't. Depends on if you're drawing with a three-and-a-half-year-old or not. And actually, even when you're not drawing a half, I mean, they, they kind of connect up, but, but not quite. Like somebody might have drawn the head of an octopus, and the next person might have drawn the body of a car, and the next person might have drawn, um, I don't know, transformer feet or something, right? So you get these kind of random drawings. But, but the, <laughs> the, the metaphor that I want to use today, for today is sort of just this, this unveiling. It's sort of as you, as you open up that piece of paper, it becomes clear. So you might see the first bit, and there might even be the guides for the next bit, but it's until you, until you actually unfold it that you can see the whole, thing's clear, whole thing clearly. And this, I think, this to me speaks of, of human history. <laughs> I'm going big this morning. It's my last turn to preach this year, so I'm going to go for it. <laughs> human history. So you've got the Bible. Um, and the Bible covers a lot of time, a lot of time, hundreds and hundreds of years. And right at the very beginning, we have that first unveiling where, where the Lord speaks light into being, and then, you can, then people can see, the people who were going to be created, then could see what was going on. You have these unveilings that happen throughout the, whole, throughout the Old Testament. Prophets come along, and, and God gives them a, a sight to be able to see things from his perspective to see events that were going on, to see what was going on behind governments and powers, what was going on behind that, what was God's purposes being worked out through those things. Then you have, so that's sort of, imagine that to be uh, sort of like unfolding that, that first bit of paper, it's like the Old Testament. And then you have the next unveiling, and that's where Jesus comes into the scene. Jesus, the Son of God, God himself uh, taking on human form, God becoming flesh and blood, the incarnation, this absolute uh, incredible miracle. And this is like the next unveiling. And then the third unveiling is what's t- uh, talked about often in the New Testament uh, through what Jesus says and also in the book of Revelation and other places, and it's when Jesus returns. This third unveiling. And so if you're in the middle of an exquisite corpse or playing this game, sometimes you can see a bit of, you can see, you can see the beginning, you can see what's happened before, you get a bit of a guide or these signposts for what's happening in the present, and you might even have a bit of an inclination from what's happening in the future, but you actually, even if we imagine it very well, we're probably going to get it wrong. And it's not until we actually unwrap the whole piece of paper that we can see things clearly. 
So it can be really frustrating because we go, well, what, what, what are you doing, Lord? What are you doing now? What are you doing in the future? And we have these guideposts uh, or, or things from the past that we can look to. At the time when Jesus arrived, uh, it was it had been hundreds of years since um, since the since the Jewish people had heard the voice of the Lord. So when you turn through uh, your Bible, unless you've got uh, the the uh, deuterocanonical books and the Apocrypha, then it kind of jumps forward from the Book of Malachi to the Book of Matthew. It jumps forward from this um, this prophet who was speaking into speaking the words of the Lord to, into a situation four hundred years, and then onto the scene arrives uh, another prophet, John the Baptist, and then Jesus. Four hundred years of waiting, four hundred years of having these promises like what we what we've just looked at in Isaiah, where there's this promise of a child who would come, who would have a kingdom, who's who would, of, of everlasting peace and justice and righteousness. 400 years. That's a long time. They've been waiting and waiting and waiting. When is, when is the Lord's ways going to be revealed? And a lot of stuff happens in this, in this gap. Like different kingdoms march in, into the land of uh, Israel and, and take over. So we have, um, I, think if, I think I've got the order right, like the Persians and then the Greeks and then the Romans. You have the kingdom after kingdom rolling in. And there must have been loads and loads of changes because when you look at the Old Testament, there's no mention of Pharisees, no mention of Sadducees, these different uh, Jewish groups that we see in the New Testament. And somehow in, in, in this, uh, people call it the intertestamental period, <laughs> intertestamental period, a whole lot of stuff happens, massive societal changes. And I'm sure that, and so you've got these, you have a group of people, uh, some Jews, and they're holding on, to the, holding on to the promises of God and just waiting uh, faithfully, generation after generation, people getting sick, people dying, uh, going, when, are these gonna, when is this going to come to pass? When is this going to happen? Is this, is this hopeless, or are we going to get there in the end? Is God going to come through on his promises? Others that sort of took matters into their own, into their own hands and decided we're going to make this happen ourselves, and they took up arms and they went to war and battle. All you know, diff- different strategies, different ways of waiting. Jesus arrives, completely expected from our perspective when we look at the prophecies, and we can kind of go, oh, "Okay, this all makes sense now." But for, for for those people at the time, these prophecies they they came to pass in a way that was completely unexpected. We've talked about it quite a lot, that they perhaps they expected a king to be born who would be a king in the, in the natural sense of the word, this king who would be born and would um, uh, rescue Israel. He would overthrow the Romans. He would ro- overthrow the Gentiles and the pagans, and Israel would become a great nation again. Perhaps that's what they expected. Perhaps they expected this king would, uh, would completely change things and there'd be no more warfare. There'd be no more uh, stress or, or anxiety. There'd be no more sickness or death. Instead, there'd be everlasting peace and righteousness and justice, which is what we just read in that prophecy in Isaiah. And instead, Jesus is born. I love it how we have the nativity right in front of the cross. The nativity scene, Jesus is born as a baby in the most humble of conditions, 
laid in a manger. So when the shepherds came to, came to visit him, after the angels give them, gave them directions, they discovered Jesus, this baby, lying in a manger. A manger is where animals come and eat from, right? Humble conditions. And then Jesus, Jesus sort of lives, grows up, doing amazing things, turning uh, water into wine, healing people from diseases, casting out demons, doing these things that perhaps they expected the Messiah or this promised king to do, but then doing really unexpected things, like eating and spending time with sinners or outsiders, Gentiles, Samaritans, prostitutes, doing things that he shouldn't be doing, washing the feet of his disciples. When, like, What kind of king does that? The disciples should have been washing the feet of their king, right? So doing things around, doing things around the wrong way. And yet we, we look at it now and we go, oh, it makes sense. But for them, completely didn't, right? Because this is like that unveiling of that exquisite corpse piece of paper where there was guides, but actually the way that it looked was not was it what was expected. And for us, for us, we're in a similar, a similar situation, 2,000 years ago, this child was born, and he met the, met the uh, fulfilled prophecies. He did the things that uh, the Messiah um, would do. And we look back and we go, Jesus, you are the, you are the king. You are the child that was promised in Isaiah. You're the, um, you fulfilled these, these sorts of things. And yet, we're still waiting for there to be everlasting peace. We're still waiting for there to be justice and righteousness. So we're still living in a darkness. We're still waiting for an unveiling, for the next page to be opened up, to be able to see what's going on. Still waiting for the apocalypse. And this is why Christmas is such a powerful season for us. Such a powerful season for us. I always make fun of our pack and save in Petone because they, every year they, they roll out the nativity scene. And, uh, and so you, as we learned last night in the quiz, it's completely inaccurate because there's a cow there and there's a sheep there and a, and a donkey and they're all surrounding this baby that's in the manger and there's wise men there and as well as Mary and Joseph. And actually, when you read the accounts, apparently, according to Zoe and the quiz masters last night, um, we do not know lots of those things. Anyway, you have this nativity scene behind Perspex so you don't get too close and you don't wreck it. And it, it is kind of beautiful in, in a way. But there's a, there's a massive, nativity scenes are great, but there's a risk because we look at it and we go, that's Jesus. And, and he's this mannequin, like this little baby that can't do anything. I wonder if Pack and Save would ever have a sign above Jesus and say, this is the Son of God. This is... Um, his name is Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. This baby is Mighty God. This baby is the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. This baby is the one whose kingdom is never-ending, right? And it kind of takes it from being a, a mannequin, a, a, a tiny, weak, um, 
impotent baby, you know, a baby that can't do anything, to actually the baby who's got everything in his hands. <laughs> I know I'm throwing a whole lot of stuff at you today. It's um, a whole lot of images that, that hopefully they will kind of weave together. Jesus becoming flesh, as I said before, the incarnation is incredibly important. When Jesus became flesh, he took on, took on flesh and blood, took on skin and bone, took on all of what it means to be human. And this, I think, is really, really powerful. I've got four reasons why I reckon that God in the flesh matters, matters for us. And the first reason is, there's probably way more than four, but this is what I've got. The first reason that I've got is that Jesus, God, is forever united physically with humanity. Forever united physically with humanity. A couple of things on this. One is, it's, um, isn't it awesome to know that uh, someone in your team is actually a really, really good player? Like if you play, uh, if you play hockey, then you'd be really stoked to have Judah on your team because Judah's a really, really good hockey player, right? And if you, um, if you play rugby um, and you're just going, to, going down to the park for a bit of a runabout and then, I don't know, Richie McCaw turns up and, and he wants to play on your team, you'd be stoked. The other team doesn't have a chance because you've got Richie McCaw, former all-black captain. Well, we've got on our team, we've got Jesus, We've got Jesus, <laughs> Jesus in the flesh. He's on our team, and he's actually our team captain. He's going to tell us what to do. He's going to tell us our strategies. We have a flesh and blood God. We don't worship a God that is distant and so far away that he doesn't understand us. He, instead, we've got a flesh and blood God who knows all of what it means to be human. It says that he was tempted in every way. And we know from the gospel accounts that he suffered incredibly. He knows suffering. He knows temptation. We've got a flesh and blood God, the ultimate human, forever united with, with us physically. Uh, John three sixteen says, <laughs> yeah. It's probably the most famous verse, eh? And yet I'm still going to look it up. John 3.16. Because I want to backtrack a little bit. John 3.16. John 3.15 is where we're going to call, read from. Actually, John 3.13 is where we're going to read from. John 3.13. No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. But God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. But God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world may be saved through him. I wanted to read from verse 13 there because no one has, it says, no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Jesus descended from heaven. Jesus came from heaven, took on flesh and blood in order to live his life on earth, in order to uh, be born as a baby, to live the life of a perfect and sinless man, 
in order to go to the cross, take on the sins of the world, take on the, the, the suffering that we, we deserve to defeat evil, to defeat sin, to defeat death, to be resurrected, physically resurrected, still flesh and blood, Jesus, to, be, to then to ascend into heaven. Where, he's, where he is right now, thank you, Jesus, that right now in heaven, you are our flesh and blood God. At the right hand of the Father, our team captain, our king, forever united with us physically. Okay, the second reason why it matters that God uh, became flesh for us. S- some people talk about uh, Jesus' life um, as being the Christ event. The Christ event. And I think I kind of like it because it's this moment in history, this event that just changes everything. Born as a baby, living uh, as, a, as a person, as a human, going to the cross, and then, and then being resurrected. This is the Christ event. Christmas is not a standalone, a standalone event. It's not an isolated thing. It's only significant because of the rest of the story. This is, I think, another reason why the nativity scene outside Pack and Save is sometimes not helpful because it looks like, oh, that's it, that's Christmas. But that's not Christmas. If Jesus didn't live his life and then go to the cross on our behalf and not stay dead because death has, um, has no control, can't contain him, but be risen again, be resurrected, if that didn't happen, then Christmas is just we wouldn't even know about it. It's not a standalone event. It's only significant because of the rest of the story. So when we come to Christmas, uh, we, we worship and we celebrate and we sing these songs of Christmas because of the whole story that we know. That's the second reason why I think God in the flesh matters is because of Jesus' entire life, life, death, and resurrection. Third reason. The third reason is because Jesus, God in the flesh, died for us. Died for us. Flesh and blood, God died for us. Isaiah 53. Thank goodness I put these bookmarks in this morning. Isaiah 53, verse 5 says, But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. And we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Jesus, when he went to the cross, he took upon himself our sin, our, the punishment for our sin. All of us faced death. And Jesus died. Jesus also faced death. But death couldn't hold him down. He was resurrected. Jesus is the flesh and blood God, forever united with humanity, that took upon himself uh, our, our sin, our suffering, took upon himself, died, but was resurrected. And so when we come to Christmas and they remember the incarnation, we also remember that Jesus' resurrection uh, speaks of our resurrection. <laughs> I know I've jumped a long way then, but just hold on to it. Jesus died. But death couldn't hold him. And likewise, if we are in Jesus, when we die, death cannot hold us either. And instead, we are resurrected. Am I going with time? I'm going to take a bit of a, just a quick side note. There's this cartoon image of heaven that a lot of us have. And it's that we, when we die, this, um, 
eternal part of us, this immortal part of us, disappears, ends up in this uh, heavenly place, sitting on clouds, playing a harp, and that's heaven. Nobody wants to go there. (laughs) Nobody does. And it's not biblical. It's not the biblical understanding of heaven. Heaven is where, heaven is uh, God's throne room. It's not, a, it's not clouds with people playing harps. It's God's throne room. It's almost like uh, if you're in a war and there's the general's headquarters, that's heaven. That's where Jesus is commanding his angel armies who also happen to sing. I'm sure that it's an angel choir as well as an um, angel army, the heavenly host. I'm sure that they sing. They sing and do battle. That's where Jesus is ruling from. So yes, we die. Yes, we, we go to heaven to be with Jesus. The Bible then speaks of resurrection. So then we're resurrected somehow, somehow in the flesh, as Jesus was resurrected in the flesh, somehow everything you see in the physical is, is restored to be made the way that it's meant to be. The new Jerusalem coming down. If you've ever looked at Revelation, it'll spin your head out. Like I said, we get these guideposts of the future that we, we struggle to understand. New Jerusalem, the heavens and the earth all coming together, ruling for a thousand of years, however that works out. Physically, <laughs> this is what I'm trying to get at. Physically, this stuff matters. Our skin and bones matter. What we do in our days matter. It's not a waste of time. Mate, so anyway, where am I up to? Reason number four, why God in the flesh matters. <laughs> feel like I'm just shotgun, shotgun this morning. Um, I've already kind of covered this. Reason number four is ascension. Jesus uh, ascended into heaven. Again, he didn't, uh, like, raise, he didn't like, lift off, off the earth to land on a cloud somewhere to play our harp, and that's our heavenly hope. It says that he ascended into heaven to be seated at the right hand of God where he's the king ruling forever. Right now, ruling forever. I know that we don't experience everlasting peace right now. But we believe that, his, that this kingdom of everlasting peace is on the move, that it's extending even now because Jesus is the ascended king at the right hand of the Father currently ruling and reigning from heaven in the flesh. Did I say four reasons why it matters? I've got five. (laughs) Wait, there's more. He will return. He will return. This is our hope. The Son of God, the God Most High, fully God and fully man, he's coming back. He's going to return and our waiting will be over. The unveiling will be complete, the final unveiling. This is what we think about when we think about the sort of like the future apocalypse, an unveiling that will be complete. This is our hope for the future. This is why this morning the only slide that I've got is, is of a solar eclipse. It's the moon in front of the sun, and all we can see behind it is the sun's light radiating out from from behind that darkness. And this, is our, this speaks of, of uh, our lives. It speaks of our, our culture, our world, our society, where there's darkness, and occasionally you catch glimpses of what is coming, 
Occasionally we catch glimpses of, of God, or I think last week during worship I had this uh, picture of um, like, a, a, like a crack in a door, and, and we could see like this, uh, almost like this glory or this light uh, shining out through that door, and that's like this, this the sun is coming. Or in the morning, when, um, if you get up at 5.45 or something, um, the sun comes up over the hills, and this is... You know, we catch glimpses of that light, but still we see the darkness. Still we see the darkness. We need to have, <laughs> we need to have, we need to have that revelation of God that helps us to see the light around the edges. There's one reason why coming to church on Sundays is really important, is it helps us to see uh, there's glimpses around the edges, the glimpses of God's, of God's future kingdom breaking into the present. Our final unveiling. Oh Lord, that you'd give us, each of us, an apocalypse. That you'd unveil, unveil our, 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 our vision so that we might be able to see more of you. That we might be able to see more of your kingdom breaking into the present, Lord. Let it come, God. Even now, Lord, let your kingdom invade this place, Lord. Come, come, God. So Christmas time. Christmas time. Is a good time, but when we think about it in the in the in the in the biggest picture that we possibly can of what Jesus what Jesus did what Jesus is doing, then it gives us hope for the present, hope for the present to see the inbreaking of God's future kingdom into the present. Again, again, looking at the solar eclipse, we know that a solar eclipse is just a moment in time. The moon <laughs> moves in front of the sun. That's right. It's the moon that's moving. The moon ends up in front of the sun. And then if you wait for a few moments, it moves away and you can see the sun in all its glory. And you go, yeah, James, but it's been 2,000 years since Jesus was here. It's a long eclipse of the sun, right? And then you read really encouraging passages like in Second Peter where it says, don't you know, my beloved, my brethren, or my beloved? For God, um, a thousand day, a thousand years is like one day, and one day is like a thousand years. So for God, two thousand years is like two days. It's almost like the period of time between the crucifixion and the resurrection. We need to, we need in these moments to two things: one have one have faith that God is at work. And two, to be able to see those glimpses of, uh, of his future, of what is to come. Hope for the present, the inbreaking of God's future kingdom. Hope for the future, when there will be no more darkness, no fear and no evil, everlasting peace, like in that Isaiah prophecy that we've been looking at. So we look forward to the, to the final unveiling of God of Jesus, Holy Spirit, and all of the Lord's glory. Christmas is a is a powerful season, eh? So thoughts that I'm um, love for us to um, to go away with. The first one is. In this, in this period of waiting, and we don't know how long we're going to be waiting for. But to be 
to be waiting with expectancy and to be waiting in preparation for the dawn. It might happen. It might happen this afternoon. It might happen in our lifetime. The Lord Jesus might return in our lifetime. Man, I don't think I've ever thought or said that out loud before. He might return. He might return this week. Imagine that. Oh, bring it on, Lord. Bring it on. But I'm not ready. Prepare for the dawn. Be prepared. What are you going to do uh, to, to be prepared when, when Jesus returns? Uh, the, the second thing is to invite, invite the Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit comes, when the Holy Spirit comes, oh, I don't actually know how I connect this one in. When the Holy Spirit comes, he, he brings revelation, he helps us to see things, and he brings life. He brings life. Is there anything God cannot do? For Mary, she was like, how, how will I have a baby? And then the Holy Spirit hovered over her and she conceived. Creation, Holy Spirit hovers over the waters and we have creation. Is there anything that the Lord cannot do? We need to um, like to be able to see, to have a have a greater vision, I think, and also to have that revelation uh, of of what is happening in the present and in the future. Uh, Luke eleven thirteen. This is going to be the last passage that I look at this morning. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Luke, Luke thirteen, Luke eleven. Sorry, Luke eleven thirteen says, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? My point is that it's the Holy Spirit, it's God himself who brings revelation to us, who unveils things for us, so helps us see to see things, to catch glimpses of his glory, to catch glimpses of his goodness. It's the Holy Spirit and Jesus says in this passage in Luke 13 that uh, if we ask, we will receive. And we can actually ask the Heavenly Father to give us the Holy Spirit to help us see and to, be able, um, to see things from his perspective. All right. I know I just threw a whole lot of stuff at you this morning. <laughs> but let us, let us stand and pray. And seek the Lord. I really, I just been feeling quite strongly on on my heart, um, even before I came, about the removing of um, of scales from our eyes, and the sort of like that removing, or the pushing back of veils, to have, um, you know, to take a phrase, to have our own personal apocalypse, to have a, a revealing. It doesn't, does it? it? Well, it does sound good when you kind of know what it really means, but we're not. We don't want our own personal zombie apocalypse. We want. Man, I really would love that, eh? To have that veil taken away, to be able to see things from God's perspective, from Jesus' perspective. <laughs> so let's uh, let's pray. I'll um, just invite the Holy Spirit to come, and I encourage you to um, to open yourself up. You might even want to like lay your fingers on your eyes and invite the Holy Spirit to come and give you. Uh, to remove the veil, right? To better see things from his perspective. So come, Lord. Come, Lord Jesus. 
Lord Jesus, thank you that you came in the flesh 2,000 years ago, that you forever united yourself with humanity, with us, that even now you're ruling and reigning from your heavenly throne, God in the flesh, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Thank you, Jesus, that you said before you left that you will never leave us nor forsake us, that even though you're ruling and reigning from heaven, that you're here with us today. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you say with two or three are gathered in your name, that you're there in their midst. Lord, there's two or three or more of us here today, so we trust and we believe that you're here in our midst. And so we ask you, Lord Jesus, just as you said we should, we ask you for your Holy Spirit. Would your Holy Spirit come right now and fall afresh upon, upon your children this morning? As we go into the season of Christmas, as we wrap up 2020 and go into the, uh, into the new year of 2021, would you, would you fill our senses, would you fill our minds, would you fill our hearts with your spirit? Give us your vision, your understanding. Would you remove the scales from our eyes? Lord, we uh, lay our hands, we lay our fingers on our eyes, and we speak to veils to be removed this morning so that we might all catch glimpses of you, Jesus. Come, Holy Spirit. Let your kingdom come. Kingdom come. Some of you, all you see is darkness. So, Lord, for those... For those who only see darkness at the moment, Lord, let your light shine. Speak light into being. Let there be light. Holy Spirit, would you, would you hover over us even this morning? As you hovered over creation, as you hovered over the Virgin Mary, would you hover over us and, and bring things to life? Holy Spirit, come. Holy Spirit, come. Holy Spirit, come. We wait for you. Lord, would you restore would you restore hope this morning? Hope that, uh, that you're with us in the waiting and that you're bringing good things to pass. You're bringing good things into being. Lord, would you uh, restore peace this morning? where we are being uh, hounded with anxiety and stress and fear. Lord, let your, let your peace reign in our hearts. Come, Holy Spirit. Lord, let, would you fill us with joy this morning, joy of your goodness, joy of your life and your light. Come, Holy Spirit. And would you fill us with, with your love, God, that we might know that we are in your love, that we are loved, that we can be filled with your love. Come, Holy Spirit.